We're studying Acts, the book of Acts. And today, I want to remind you that the book of Acts, when Luke wrote it as the second volume of a two-volume set, he didn't put in the chapters and verses. That was added later. So what we study today, we're going to study right across a transition between chapters. I'm going to start in chapter 4, verse 32, and go through chapter 5, verse 11. Please open your Bibles and read this together with me prayerfully. Uh, It's an interesting passage that we have today, uh, but we're going to try to uh, attack it in a way that's glorifying to God. So uh, please read together with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles back there next to the sound booth in the in the bookcase, please grab one and, and read along with us today. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was distributed to each, and the proceeds were distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, challenging passage we've got to approach this morning. I ask for grace and mercy as we go through it, that You would show us each individually and all of us together as a group exactly what it is you have for us here this morning holy spirit fill us we are we are in need of being filled by you open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word to the truth of the gospel and father we ask for lou and mary beth this morning as they're not with us thank you for this opportunity for them to take some vacation and get away we ask that you would renew and refresh them and empower them anew to come back and to serve you in a way that's glorifying to you In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Kids, you're dismissed. That's what you were waiting for, right? So if you're new to us here, what we like to do is we like to preach what we call exegetically. We like to open a book of the Bible and preach all the way through it, chapter 1, verse 1 to the end. And by doing that, we get the opportunity to preach on some things that you wouldn't step out and say, hey, I'm going to preach a sermon on that today. I think today might just be one of those days. Um, And I think it's just coincidental that Lou's on vacation. We have this inside joke. It's not inside anymore because I'm about to tell you that every time we preach about money, it's my turn to preach. So if you remember our summer series, I I preached on uh, should New Testament Christians tithe. And today we get to deal with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh... Names that may not, we may not have specifically set out to study or, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time dealing with them, but I think we're all probably familiar with them to some extent. You've probably heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira at some point. If you haven't, let me just tell you, it's a good thing to name your kids biblical names, but don't choose these two. <laughs> just a bit of wisdom, open a concordance, read, you know, the name and find out what the scriptural principle behind those names are before you name your kids. Ananias and Sapphira probably are not what you want to choose. Um, It's the ultimate, and you may have heard a Sunday school teacher or your parents use it this way, but it's the ultimate, you may be able to lie to us, you may be able to lie to your parents, or in this scenario, the elders to the church, but you can't lie to God, and if you try, he's going to get you. And in principle, And in practice, that's definitely a strong lesson and one that we should all take heed of. But I don't think it's the only lesson in this passage. And so let's take the time to go through it and work through it today and see what else is there. So far in our study in the book of Acts, we've seen um, that Jesus, in Luke, Luke tells us that in his gospel that Jesus lived here on earth and had ministry and did things. And then in Acts, we see that Jesus continues to have ministry and do things, a lot of it through the office of the Holy Spirit. We see the apostles uh, speak in tongues and the visiting people from nations around that were there in Jerusalem at that time heard the gospel preached in their own language and understood. We saw a lame man healed, a man that was lame from birth healed. We see him erupt in worship. We see that because of this worship, Peter and John, who were in the temple at the time, are arrested for causing a disturbance in the temple, which the leaders of that time, they couldn't have that. The Romans would come in and, and wipe them out, so they couldn't have disturbances in the temple. They were, they were hauled in. They were told not to preach in the name of Jesus, and in boldness they said, we cannot not preach the Gospel. It's a, it's a, they used the, the original language, there's a double negative. There, there, there's no way that we can't preach the Gospel. We have to preach the Gospel. And then today we see a married couple who together conspire to lie to the elders of the church to defraud God. And as a result of this conspiracy, this lie, their lives are at stake. Now, I want to remind you that in his introduction, Luke told us that Acts is a historical book. We, it, the account that it gives us we call a descriptive account, not a prescriptive account. It serves in many instances to simply tell us 
what happened, not necessarily why it happened, or that we should use it as a way to do things. Like, I don't think we can necessarily draw out of today's text the principle that anyone who lies to the elders or acts out of greed needs to be executed. Because if that was the principle, <laughs> we'd all be found guilty, we'd all be dead, there wouldn't be any church, there wouldn't, we wouldn't be living life together and growing in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we know that from Scripture, the, the base principle of Scripture is that we are to live together and grow and be on mission with Jesus and seek and save that which is lost. So that can't be what it is. So that being said, what are the principles in this passage that we can take out of it and apply to ourselves right here at King's Chapel? And not only can, but should. I want to work through this passage today using the three principles that I think are there. First, principle of generosity. Oh, I guess I've got to hit it again. Ah, there it is. Principle of generosity. The principle of idolatry. And then we're going to wrap it up with the principle of reverence. So let's start with generosity. <clears throat> Luke has described for us the early days of the church. We've seen him lay out the way that Jesus has worked to build his church. In the beginning, we saw the apostles follow Jesus' instructions, stay in the upper room, and wait together for the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And as soon as that gift arrived, they obeyed Jesus' command and they went out. And they started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, and raised from the dead by God Almighty. And that while they were filled with the Holy Spirit, this preaching was extremely powerful. And as a result, many came to faith. <clears throat> We've seen that those folks who came to faith were not from the local area. They were from distant lands, many of them. And they didn't want to immediately go back to where they were from, but they wanted to be in community with the elders and believers. And so needs arose in that community. And today we're going to look at what that living in community looked like and how those needs were filled. Let's look at Acts chapter 4 and start in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I want to jump in right there. I mean, that's, that to me is an amazing testimony. And it's not like they were some kind of zombie all sharing the same heart. And it's not literal, and I know the games today, that might be the way you go with this, but it doesn't mean that. It means that they were all together, all one, all unified, all in unity, so focused and intent on Jesus and the common truth of the gospel that they were identified by those who were around them as having one heart and one soul. And do me a favor. I want you to think back to the first time you walked in here. Maybe some of you, that's the, today here, this is the first time. And I hope if it is, what you see and what you hear is a community of Christians who are of one heart and one soul, so focused on King Jesus and what He's doing, so aware of the Gospel in our lives that we can be identified as one heart and one soul. But if not, if you've been here, if this isn't, isn't your first Sunday and you've been here for a period of time, I want you to think back to when you first came in here. What was your first impression? What was it about us, this community, that you could identify with? Could you say that we were of one heart and one soul. Now, I sincerely hope so. 
Maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. But if you've been here a while, maybe you feel a little disconnected. Maybe you did feel at one point that we were all of one heart and one soul and you don't feel that way anymore. Maybe you've lived in community with us for a little while and things have gotten a little messy between some brothers and sisters. Maybe you're sitting here today or you're at home listening on the podcast because you couldn't even bring yourself to come because you feel separate. You feel disconnected and you want to know what's the way back. Well, the answer to that is the Gospel. We're all sinners. We can all make a mess of things. Things always go wrong when we get our focus off of Jesus and put them on ourselves. Put it on ourselves, our needs, our wants, and our longings. But God is good and He's gracious and He gave us the answer to all those needs and wants and longings and it's Jesus. And when it's our faith and our focus and our minds and our worship, when they are fully on Jesus, that's when it shows in our community. What we feel for each other and what is exhibited to all who come in is that we're of one heart and one soul. So I hope you're here today and you feel that. You feel connected. You feel part of a group, a community of Christians that is of one heart and one soul. And if that's true, then I hope that the question arises in your mind, well, that's great, I feel that way, but what does that look like? How do we translate that into life? How do we make that part of what comes out of us? What is the outflow in us of that of that connectedness, that central focus on the Gospel. And God in His providence provides the answers to that question in the very next verses. He says, I want to go back. And Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were, as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So that's it. What we see is that the outflow of a community that is focused on the Gospel is that it is a community of generosity. One where selfishness and self-centeredness does not exist. I, me, mine are not defining characteristics of the individual focused on the Gospel. But rather we see a community of individual Christians who recognize what has been done for them in the sacrifice made for them by Jesus Christ. And at what incredible cost it has been done. Because of this recognition, this faith, these Christian individuals in community look out to what's outside of them. It's no longer a focus on self, but what's around them. And they look and they see that the amazing gifts given to them are not for them alone, but for them to be stewards of. And where they see need, they fill it. To the point that in this community, as it's being told to us in the beginning of verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. So here, the first evidence we'll see in our Gospel-centered lives as we live in Christian community is generosity. Care for our fellow brothers and sisters. Care for our community. 
and a desire to share what God has made us stewards of with those who are in need. What other evidences do we see in this passage? Well, we see that the leadership of this community of individual Christians is preaching the gospel in power, with power. They're preaching the good news of the risen Christ, and it's powerful. And maybe not only because of that teaching, but certainly alongside it, this community is experiencing great grace. And finally, I believe what we see in the second part of verse 34 and verse 35 is a very high level of trust and submission exhibited in the community to the elders that are there leading them. You see, they had the kind of trust in their leadership that when they sold lands or property or farms or houses, and they didn't immediately identify right in their own community where the need was, they were able to take that, the proceeds of those sales, and lay them at the elders' feet and trust them to see them distributed where the greatest need was. And I'm very thankful that in many ways we have that same kind of relationship here at King's Chapel in our own Christian community. We collect tithes and offerings here every week. We take special offerings for programs like VBS, for missionaries, for special needs that arise. For the most part, everybody trusts the leadership to do with them, to do with those tithes and offerings and gifts that which is best for the community. But how much do you trust your leadership? I want you to just step back for a moment and and imagine, what if you had a really large cash sum? What if you just sold a piece of property and were going to give it all? What if you won the lottery? I don't know. I I can't condone playing the lottery. But what if you had a large sum of money? Would you be willing to just give it to the elders? Do you have that kind of faith, that kind of trust? Have we earned that? Do you have the... Or or would you want to dictate where it went or who it went to or have your name ascribed to it somehow? Now, I don't want to in any way suggest, please hear me, I'm not in any way suggesting that a gift given for a specific purpose is somehow sinful or showing a a lack of trust in your leadership. But I just simply want to encourage you to consider this example for what it shows. An example of a really high level of trust by the Christian community in their leadership. So through the Holy Spirit, Luke lays out these attributes that we've discussed. These attributes that will naturally show up as the outflow of a group of individual Christians living in community, focused on the gospel of the resurrected Christ, so focused that they have one heart and one soul, generosity, love for each other, high level of trust in your leadership. And then to emphasize it or reinforce it, he gives us an example in the following verses. So let's not miss that example. Thus Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there it is. That's what it looks like. Love for his fellow man. Recognition that there were those in greater need around him than he was in. And then generosity. Amazing generosity. Generosity that the world doesn't understand. And trust and submission to the leadership. 
So who was this guy, Joseph? Why is he here? Why should he be an example to us? Well, I just want to mention, first of all, that often in the New Testament, most of the time, in fact, I don't want to make an exclusive statement, but it was very rare to have anybody named that wasn't important. It just wasn't the the cultural way of writing. So if somebody's named, he's important. We should pay attention. And he's not only given one name, but we also know his nickname. So we have his given name. We have the name that he was called by in community. We have where he was from. All of these descriptive things added to, his, to this uh, account of him. So in the writing of the day, that would suggest that we should really pay attention to him. And we hear about Barnabas again as we go on and study Acts later. It appears that he was not, this is not just a sole point of reference for him. He was an ongoing example in the early church in many ways. Uh, we'll, we'll see him again in Acts chapter 9 when Paul, who was out murdering Christians and putting them in jail for, for their faith, gets knocked off his horse by Jesus Christ, recognizes his need, his sin, his need for a Savior, is amazingly saved, comes back to the church in Jerusalem desiring to go out and preach. And you can imagine the fear of the, of the elders in Jerusalem when this guy who's been persecuting the church shows up. And it's Barnabas who takes him, goes alongside him, tells of his testimony, tells of his miraculous conversion, and recommends him to the board of elders that they accept him. So we see him as that person. And then we understand further on in Acts, that he really got it. He really understood. This wasn't a single time that he was generous in his life. That this was an ongoing practice. That this man was so focused on the gospel, so full of the understanding of what Jesus was about, that he was driven to missional living. And he goes out on several missionary journeys with Paul, uh, which we see in the rest of Acts and other places in the New Testament. So let me ask you this. He's been given to us here as an example. Could someone use you and your life as this kind of example? Our lives? Do we really understand what God has done for us? I mean, I don't think we really can completely wrap our heads around that, but do you begin to understand what it cost God, what this sacrifice really cost Him? I mean, He did not spare His own Son. For us, and that that I can't. I don't have a son, and I can't wrap my head around that. And I think many of you probably have sons. Can you wrap your head around that? He was willing that his own son should die for you personally. And it's one thing to understand that and begin to know that here, but has that sunk down into your heart and mind to a place where it affects what you do? Can you see those around you? Is is your focus off of yourself? Can you see those around you who are in need and then not only see it, but have to do something about it? It's like that video we saw this morning. I gotta tell you. Is your life marked by extreme generosity? If not, where your heart and your mind are really focused when it's not on the gospel, that's an idol. That's something that it should not be in that place. Have you ever had, stepping back to Barnabas for a second, I want to ask you if you've had a Barnabas in your life. I, someone who's lived this as an, lived as an example of this kind of living in your life. Someone that you can look at and say, God's given me this example to follow. 
<clears throat> I've had several in my life uh, for which I'm very, very thankful for. And I want to tell you about one of them today. Uh, I'm just going to call him David. David was a man that I met in a church in Florida. And uh, I, I did not know at the point that I met him many of the things I'm about to tell you. But I had the opportunity to live in community with him and see and observe his life and learn from him. And then as I got to know him, I found out a little bit about where he came from and what had happened in his life. And he became an even more powerful testimony to me. David lived in Atlanta and he was a businessman and he was involved in an industry that changed dynamically very quickly. And the industry changed, and the job that he was in, he lost. And he was very high up in the company, and so he lost his job, and he lost his house. And uh, he felt sorry for himself and turned inward and turned to seeking for, to ease the pain and some, in things that should not be used that way, alcohol and prescription drugs. And he ended up in a gutter by himself, alone, without family, without his home, without a job. And he'd been saved as a child and raised in the church and understood the truth of the gospel, but he just wasn't letting it speak into his life. And uh, he woke up one day in the gutter alone and without any money and no home and no family, and he turned his face and his heart back to the Lord. He told me this many years later. He said, I... I, I just recognized that there was nothing, nowhere else that I could go or should go. And that was, but back, but back to Jesus. And he said, Lord, he prayed out loud, Lord, I have nothing but you. You are my all. I will seek from this time forward to do everything in a way that glorifies you. And that's what he did. And this is not an example, was not an example to me, and I'm not holding up as an example to you as a prescription or as a way to go, but God heard that in that moment and raised him up. He had several ideas that became patents for small electric motors, and financially, he was amazingly blessed. And yet, that never became a part of his life again. Everything that he did from that day forward was about somebody else. He contributed amazing sums of money but that nobody but but the people involved knew to the planning of churches he contributed as he walked down the street saw people in need he was all he was a giver he was always giving and he took me aside as a young man as a young christian in a place of real um, loss in my own life and he said to me you're allowing yourself to be driven. And these are the words that I really took to heart. You're allowing yourself to be driven by outside influences. You're not allowing yourself to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And those were just, those are, that was 20-some years ago. And I, that just, today, that pierces me to the heart. Are you, are you allowing yourself to be driven by circumstances or by people around you? Or, are you, or is the gospel central? Is Jesus your focus? And is the Holy Spirit filling you? And I believe, as David was an example for me, as I saw his life and what he had, he, where he had been and what he'd become, I believe that Barnabas was that kind of example for Ananias and Sapphira. 
I think that Barnabas could have spoken into their lives that way. But they didn't allow it. But rather, they allowed something else to speak into their lives. I want to talk a little bit about what that looked like. Because that's where the passage goes next. If you've been here for more than once, you probably heard Lou or Bill or Perry or I speak about idols and idolatry. There are a lot of really good things for us. Really good things to be involved in. Really wonderful things for us to pay attention to. But when we take good things and we turn them into ultimate things, they become idols. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. And he also said, and this is, to me this is critical, the evil in our desire typically, typically does not lie in what we want, but that in we want it too much. We're very capable as humans at any time of losing our focus on Christ and the Gospel and what His grace in our lives means and what our response should be to it and focusing instead on something or someone or some idol. Mark Driscoll, when preaching this passage, said the most pervasive idols in our society today are sex and money. And I think, I think if you walk around, you'll recognize that because what are the things that people say? They say, don't talk to me about how I should live my sex life and don't talk to me about how I should spend my money. And yet, we're called by God to do those very things. To talk to work through what the Scripture says about how we ought to live our lives in in regards to those two things. And what we see in the next part of this passage is a couple who lose their focus on the Gospel and who start to seek after something or someone else. Chapter 5, verse 1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Well, that's great. So far, we're doing really well. We're following the example. They're living in community with a group of other Christians. They see this example of what Barnabas has done. They look around them outside. They're not focused on themselves initially. They see need, and they decide to do something by selling a piece of their own property and contributing the proceeds to the needy. But then if we keep reading, something suddenly goes really bad. Verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's not what Barnabas did. Something's going wrong here. They didn't give all. And we're all familiar with that little word, you know, all. It means all. It says that his, and it says that he kept back part of it for himself, and it also says that his wife, Sapphira, was in on the deal with him. So they're no longer following Barnabas' example. And why not? Why, what changes? Well, what happened to them being of one heart and soul of the community they were in? What happened to being filled with the Holy Spirit and the outflow of that filling showing up as amazing generosity? Well, Luke tells us what happened. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. You see, Ananias and Sapphira were no longer filled with the Holy Spirit, 
but rather they had allowed Satan to fill their hearts. Now please hear me, this is extremely important. Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. They were believers. And they did not suddenly hear, lose their faith, become unsaved, or be possessed or anything like that. We've taught, Lou taught about early on in Acts, and we've heard about it before, that there is one baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens at salvation, but throughout the Christian life and the Christian walk, there are many fillings of the Holy Spirit. So Ananias and Sapphira didn't lose their salvation, but they were not at the moment filled by the Holy Spirit because they'd lost their focus on the Gospel and instead had begun to listen to the temptations of the deceiver, Satan. Listen to his lies. Decided because of that to lie to the Holy Spirit, to lie to God, to lie to their Christian community and to cheat the family of God. And I want to take a moment to point out here that Peter, speaking to Ananias, says, why has Satan filled your heart, seemingly putting the blame or onus on Satan and giving Ananias a way out? But if we move, as we move on and get into verse 4, we'll see that that's not actually the case. Because in verse 4 he says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in, you have contrived this deed in your heart? So very clearly here, Satan had a role in tempting Ananias and Sapphira and lying to them. But Ananias and Sapphira are also just as clearly fully responsible for planning this lie and carrying it out. And I just, I want to take a minute here and tell you, set the scene for you. Because I know in my own life, a lot of times when I'm reading the Bible and I spent some time in it and I'm studying it, I tend to, you know, not make it personal. And it's, it's been something that I've done is to look at Peter in this example as some sort of imposing figure, some sort of on-the-throne judge. Seems to be sitting in judgment and sort of acting high and mighty. But I think if we were in that room on that day, we would certainly have seen a Peter who was in a position of authority and handling the situation but I think we also would have seen a Peter whose desire was to see Ananias and Sapphira acting from a heart filled with the Holy Spirit in love and generosity and not as individuals being led by Satan into lies and cheating. I can tell you from my own experience as an elder here at King's Chapel that the, time that has been, the times that have been the hardest for me and for the other elders in the room are the times when we see somebody whose life we have spoken into and shown God's grace, and shown the gospel to reject it and walk away and go and pursue their own, follow the lies of the tempter and pursue their own thing. I want you to remember that Peter himself has experience with what he's seeing here. He was not immune to listening to the lies of Satan because just six or eight weeks earlier, he found himself in a courtyard during the initial trial of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, denying that he even knew Jesus. So he had recently allowed himself to fall prey to the lies of Satan even after Jesus had told him it was going to happen. Jesus told him, Satan seeks to sift you, Peter. So I, I, I can't stress enough that Peter 
saw sin in Ananias and Sapphira's, Sapphira's life and that he, that had to be addressed and he needed to speak to it and he was dealing with this situation but I'm also sure that as an elder in that situation he was crushed by what he was seeing and Andy related to it. And in verse 4, as we get ready to look at verse 4, I want to, I want to turn our attention to something. There's a lot of Christians today who've developed this idea that God hates money or that God doesn't want us to own anything. That being poor somehow makes you more spiritual or closer to God. And I, I want to stress this can't be any further from the truth. God is very clear about this in His Word. And I'm not here to make any kind of a political statement or anything, but the truth of the Bible, the truths in the Bible endorse personal ownership and personal stewardship. The Bible teaches living in community and living in a way that's supportive of that community. It does not teach communal living or communism. What we saw with Barnabas and what we see here are individuals who are living in community that have individual ownership of their own personal belongings generously and of their own volition giving up what they have for the support of someone who does not have. Nowhere do we see the elders or anyone else taking anything away from someone and giving it to someone else. Nowhere do we see in Scripture any teaching that would lead us to believe that any, that any one of us is entitled to something that somebody else has or has earned. You see, God is the giver of gifts. God is, God is the ultimate giver. He's not a taker. Remember, He says, He says, I'll take, He does take, He takes, He takes our sin and our brokenness and our disease and He gives us salvation. But He gives each of us individually gifts and then He requires us to be good stewards of them. Jesus, during His ministry here on earth, reinforced this by when He told the parable of the talents. You know, the owner is going away and He gives stewards money to be stewards over it he didn't take that away from other people and give it to him he gave it to him and those who were good stewards he said you've been faithful and little i'll make you stewards of much so we see over and over in in the bible these this principle of being a good steward of what god has given to you and i and also god this you know, money's evil. Well, it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. That's, that's what the Bible tells us. The, the biblical truth is that everything that we have has been given to us as a gift by God. And that we should live lives marked by incredible generosity. Generosity that the world doesn't understand. Christians should be able to be identified by how they live generously in community not by a demand to have all things shared equally. And there's a huge difference there. And here we see Peter, as he speaks to Ananias about his sin, completely reinforce this truth. He says in verse 4, do I have verse 4 up there? Yes. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So the sin here clearly was not that he owned something. It had nothing to do with individual ownership. And the teaching we should take away from it is not that we all deserve a piece of the communal property, but something else. So what was the sin? And what should we take away from it? 
And we'll move on into the next verse, next part of the verse, second part of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And there it is. The sin was in the lying, the corrupt heart, trying to deceive God. Ananias in his heart was not acting out of generosity and love for the needy that he saw in his community because he was no longer filled with the Holy Spirit as Barnabas had demonstrated to him could happen. But rather, he was trying to gain favor with God and in so doing look righteous in front of the people around him and look as though he were doing the same thing as Barnabas. And <clears throat> So instead of acting out of generosity, since he was filled by the Holy Spirit, he listened to Satan in his heart and acted out of greed and sin. And the end result of that is that God calls him into, his, into account for his sin immediately and the result is death. Look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Let's not take this opportunity to get all self-righteous and jump in and act as judge over Ananias and Sapphira because God is judge, we're not. But let's rather take the opportunity to see if there's something here that we can identify with. Are we careful, being careful to remain focused on the truth of the Gospel? The truth that we are no more capable of gaining favor with God than we are of changing the weather? Because if we were, there'd be sunshine today. Or it would be 30 degrees so the deer hunters would... So the deer would move. God is the one who did it all. Jesus is the one who lived the perfect life we should have and don't. Jesus is the one who suffered for us and paid the ultimate sacrifice that we should have to and won't ever have to endure because He did it for us. Is that our focus? Is that our intent? Because if not, then what happens is we leave the door open to listen to the temptations and the lies of Satan. And I hope for all of us here today that we can say that that is our focus and that is the direction that we're going. But if we're going to sit here and say that today, then at one point in our lives, each and every one of us who claims to be a Christian said to Jesus, said to God, I give it all to you. And that means all. So we better still mean all. Going back to our text, we see that it was not just Ananias, but it involved his wife Sapphira as well. Let's move on to verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now family, we speak often here at King's about husband and wife relationships, about the importance of the marriage relationship. It's a relationship that God ordained during His process of creation 
When before sin entered the world, he looked and saw one thing that was not good. And it was that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve and gave her to Adam as community to be his wife. This relationship of husband and wife is the descriptive relationship that God uses repeatedly in Scripture to describe our relationship as the church to Jesus Christ. And this relationship continues to be diminished and come under attack in our society. Marriage is not disposable. It's not for only as long as it's convenient and then we'll just cancel it or trade it in on whatever our current fancy is. It's a covenant between one man and one woman before God and it comes with responsibilities. Just like our relationship as the church to Jesus Christ is a covenant between Him and us and we have responsibilities in that as well. And the Reader's Digest version of the responsibilities that we have in marriage are that husbands, we before God have the responsibility of being godly, biblical authorities in our homes that in a way that shows the love, the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ when He demonstrated His love for the church and died for it to our wives, shown in front of the world that way, we lead our wives and our children and our homes. And wives, your responsibility is that you live in submission to your husbands, even when you're not in complete agreement with them. Remember, submission only comes into play when there's disagreement. If you're always on the same page, then there's no need to submit. But that being said, there is a time, wives, when you should not submit. And here's an example of it. If you reach a point in your relationship where your husband is asking you to do something or say something that goes in direct contradiction with the nature of God Almighty as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word, then you need to say no. I honestly believe that if when Peter said to Sapphira, was this all of it? If she'd said, you know Peter, Ananias asked me to say that it was but I can't lie to you as the elders of the church and I can't lie to God and I can't defraud the community of believers. No, we kept some back to redo the kitchen back at the tent. She would still be, well, she wouldn't still be alive today because it's 2,000 years later. But she would have lived through that event. The young men would not have come back in for her and buried her next to her husband. But she didn't. And so what we have here is not an example of biblical submission in marriage. It's just another example of greed and giving in to temptation. And it cost her her life as well. Wow, i got to tell you. (laughs) Corrupt hearts, people lying to community, lying to elders, lying to God, getting whacked, falling out, getting buried. I can only imagine that if you and I were in that room on that day, we'd have been quaking in our boots, waiting for the bolt of lightning that was about to take us out. And rightly so, because we all have sin in our hearts. And immediately what we see in the community of Christians is this response. It says in verse 11, I'm going to move on to my third point. Maybe. Oh, I had two slides there. I'm sorry. 
I'm going to move on to my third point, reverence. And great fear, in verse 11, look at it with me. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And I think initially we can recognize how that would be so. And I know that the word fear can produce a bunch of different emotions and reactions in many of us. And for a lot of us, it's a deal breaker. We see it or hear it and we just want to block it out and walk away. We don't even, don't even want to deal with it. But it appears not just once in this passage and twice, but twice. So track with me here for a few minutes and let's try to work through it in a biblical, God-glorifying way. The first place it appears is here in chapter 5 and verse 5 where Ananias falls down dead and it says, Great fear came upon all who heard. And in both locations here and where we'll see it again at the end of the passage in 5.11, it's the Greek word phobos from which we get phobia, which many of you understand to be an irrational fear or maybe a rational fear. Spiders, snakes, and I hit on it, you can just raise your, no, don't raise your hand. Um, <clears throat> and it's translated a bunch of different words, uh, different ways. That word phobos in the Greek is translated a bunch of different ways in the New Testament. Fear, as we see here, fearful. <clears throat> but then we see it translated other ways. Same word, but translated as reverence, respect, sense of awe. And I think pretty much for the people who were in the room on that day, watching these people lie, watching them be called out for it, watching them die on the spot, get carried out and buried, immediately the sensation that they felt was fear. Straight up, unadulterated panic. But I think as we get on down to verse 11, and the context there says, great fear came upon the whole church. I'm convinced that what we see here is relating to a heart of reverence and a sense of awe for what God has done and who God is. And it's beginning to permeate the whole early church. And I know if we look back in our own lives that Probably every one of us sitting here today has an experience in our lives where we were in fear of someone, some authority. And in many cases, we lived in that fear. What we lived in, why we lived in that fear was because of a misuse of a power or authority in our life. <clears throat> Whether it was intimidation or exerted by a teacher or a boss or a neighborhood bully or even worse, abuse from a parent or a relative or a spouse, these are absolutely not an example of what this fear that we see in this chapter is like. And those authorities in our lives that have misused their position of authority or power over us are in no way an example to us of what our relationship to God looks like. I mean, yes, God is righteous and judge and holy and the supreme authority over all, but He is also the supreme example of love and grace and mercy. And He is our Father. And I know that many of us here today have had less than perfect examples of what a father should be, but God is the perfect Father. And He is in no way sitting in heaven right now seeking to slap us down or take us out because of our sin. Because if that's what He was after, He would have already done it. And the beauty of the Gospel is 
that it opens the door for us to enter into this relationship with Almighty Creator God who wants to be our Father. So please understand as you read this passage, as we go through it today, as we have gone through today, that yes, there was probably and should continue to be in our lives some sense of fear related to the understanding of the power of God displayed in this passage today. But it must be balanced by what we know of the nature of God taught by the whole of Scripture. And when we put those two things in balance, it will nurture in us a healthy respect and a reverence and a sense of awe of God Almighty, the One who loves us and through the blood of Christ we can call Father. And I want you to remember that Scripture that says perfect love casts out all fear. And who's the example of perfect love for us? Jesus. So through Jesus, we need, we need to see God in this relationship with us through that light. A lot of stuff, I know. Long passage, a lot of emotions, a lot of things happening. As we close today, I just want to ask you a simple question. Where are you at? Are you living in a community of Christians in submission to biblical teaching and leadership? Are you experiencing a regular filling of the Holy Spirit because of this? Is the natural outflow of this filling that you're no longer focused on yourself? But you see the needs of others around you in your community and around you at home and around you at work and you seek to use the gifts that God has given you, for both financial and otherwise, to fill those needs. If not, if you look at your life honestly today and you see your actions motivated by the things you want in life or think you need in life or the things, and the things that in many ways are good things, but you've allowed them to take over and become ultimate things, or idols, please take this time to confess these things to the Lord and ask for His forgiveness. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to motivate you to generosity. He will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you alone are worthy of worship and praise and glory. It's a tough passage. We see things happen here that in many ways are beyond our understanding and our explanation, but we can take out of this some simple truths that You love us, that You are our provider, that You are the giver of good gifts, that You require us to act as good stewards. You expect us to act as good stewards with what You've given us. That we need to be focused on Jesus Christ. We need to be focused on the truth of the Gospel, that we are all sinners, but that You have opened a way for us to be called the sons of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, cause that to permeate our hearts and our minds and, and for the outflow of that to be a change in perspective. Let us not be any longer focused on ourselves. Let us see those around us who are in need Cause us to be ministers of the gospel and faithful speakers of the gospel to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.